2015 Paleo Hackers. Fifth time doing this intro. Um, trying to make it short. I'm going to make this really short and sweet. I want to give you something here that might be kind of against the grain right now. It's 2015. I know that because I just tried to write it and I wrote 2014 and then I had to realize what year it was. That's where I get to December every single year and just get in the habit of writing that current year. And then I have to change it again. It's ridiculous. But anyway, so 2015, everyone right now, you know, they're caught up in this energy field of New Year's resolutions, right? I know you have people around you. Maybe you even set them yourselves. You know, this is the year I really change fill in the blank. This is the year I stop doing fill in the blank. This is the year I lose weight. This is the year I make my relationships better. This is the year I make more money. This is the year I start that business. I want to applaud you if you were that person that wanted to better yourself. However, I have a different mindset on the subject. Every single year, I don't really set resolutions. Why? Because you look at the statistics and at the end of the year, only 8% of all Americans that set resolutions follow through and are doing what they said they were doing on the 1st. Okay, so 8% is not a good number. Now, I know you're thinking you're going to be the anomaly here, but I have a better solution to New Year's resolutions. Because what happens? You say you want to lose 40 pounds. It's great for two weeks. You keep doing it. You keep doing it. You go to the gym. You feel great. You see the results. And then it slowly tapers away by February. And then you walk away feeling like a failure, right? It's stupid to set goals and fail at them. Now, what I want to propose is that instead of setting these new goals, you look back on your year and you realize what you did well. Here's the fact. We live in a society that rewards starting something, starting things, right? Uh, the kid who graduates and goes to college, right? We reward him. He's pre-med. That's so great. He's going to be a medical doctor. Uh, the person on New Year's who sets the goal to lose weight, right? It's great. They're going to make the life change. Uh, so the, the couple that just got engaged, right? They're going to have this beautiful life together. But we don't live in a society that rewards following things through finishing things. You know what the facts are? You know, everyone who graduates college, a fraction of them are pre-med. 25% of the people who graduate pre-med even get accepted to medical school. Okay. Uh, 8% of all Americans fall through on the resolutions. How many of that are the ones that lose weight? And over 50% of the couples end in divorce. Now, that is doom and gloom. I realize how depressing that is. But you can see that, you know, we get so gung-ho as a society of starting things, but the follow-through is not there. So what I'm proposing, you build on your wins, you build on your successes. What did you do well this year? I want you to answer that, or if you're driving right now, really um, even pause this and think about that. Maybe write down five things in your, in your notebook or on a piece of paper, if that sounds stupid because you've never done it before. Well, then you need to do this. Five things you did well this year and what you learned. I would steer you away, I would caution you away from resolutions and focus you more on um, appreciations, I guess you could say. You look back on your year and you build on your successes, not get crushed by your failures. So that's my little two cents here wrapping up the year. Be a person who rewards finishing things. Don't set the incentive of starting things. That's great. That's got a lot of energy behind it and you need to start things eventually. But currently right now, Reward yourself for finishing something. You did great in 2014. Chances are there's there's tons of things to feel good about. Focus on those. Bring those to the forefront. And your year will be another kick-ass year. All right, guys. Johnny Bodwin's on the show today to talk about mindset, cholesterol, everything in between. It's really good. He was on the show probably a year or two ago. Um, and it was awesome. I had to call him and, and get him back on because he was one of my favorite guests. He's got an energy that just lights up the room and he is a blast talking to. So if you want to get a hold of me, Clark at PaleoHacks.com. Always down to talk to you guys. Uh, let me know what you did well this year. It'd be a blast. Y'all ready for the show? Ready for you to hear it? Let's go see what my main man Johnny has to say. All right, my paleo hackers, with me today is the rogue nutritionist, self-proclaimed pain in the back in the nutrition industry with, man, way too many degrees and credentials that I could list in a 30-second bio. Also, one of my all-time, all-time favorite paleo hacks shows was with this man, Dr. Johnny Bodwin. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Oh, I'm so it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. I don't, I don't say that to everyone too. I mean, you know. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. I really, uh, you know, guys. If you haven't listened to the podcast we did on Unleash Your Thin, must have been a year ago or something. Um, 
it was killer. It was great. You crushed it. So I'm excited thank to get you, you back. Um, thank you. Thank you. And, and kind of touch on some things maybe we missed or maybe we need to cover again. Sure. Got a whole new audience. So, um, yeah, it's good to have you back. I mean, so kind of real quick for people, maybe this is their first time on the podcast or first time hearing from you, Johnny. What was kind of maybe like a Sparknote version of how you got into this whole uh, health journey and, and what you're doing now? <laughs> uh, do you want the truth or the, the whitewashed version? Oh, we want the truth. <laughs> this is There we go. Now we're getting well, somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people know I was a, a, in a previous life. I was a musician. I was um, very overweight, very out of shape. I smoked cigarettes. I, was, I came from sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the Woodstock era. And, you know, I was basically um, traveling around the country doing uh, Broadway shows, you know, road companies of Broadway shows and things like that. And all the actors were in great shape, and we had a lot of time to kill during the day. Mm. And I figured if I could get in shape, I would probably get more girls. <laughs> so that's <laughs> honest. The, the, I didn't have any great um, uh, motivation, any any great uh, um, transcendent reason for wanting to all of a sudden get healthy and treat my body as a, a, a castle or a kingdom. I, I really just, you know, wanted to be a little more attractive. And and um, I, you know, wasn't an athletic kid. I was, you know, I played the clarinet. I was, you know, as I said, out of shape and fat and, and kind of bored during the day on these road tours. So yeah. I started hanging out with the actors and saying, hey, how do you lift these weights? What's, what's the whole story with this? And, you know, it's one of those things, Clark, where, you, you know, you get bit by the bug sure and you become a zealot yes and like you know i was not one of those people who did this instantaneous transformation you know from unhealthy to i was the guy that would go to the gym and then have a cigarette afterwards you know so it took it was a couple of years of changing my diet changing my exercise routine and the transformations that i saw in myself were so inspiring to me you know that i i really did i just couldn't get enough of this stuff. Mm. Very, very soon I learned the location of every gym in America and in all the bus and, and, and truck stops, you know, all the road company stops. Yeah. I knew where to find the gym. I knew where to find the health food store. And, and that became kind of my social life. And, and being a kind of overeducated, academically inclined, middle-class Jew from New York City, the first thing I thought of when I started getting interested in this was how do you get a degree in it? You got to get a degree in this stuff. You know, you can't yeah. just... Yeah. read muscle and fiction magazine and think that you know you know so i i began collecting certifications as a personal trainer okay and i got one thinking oh that'll that'll look good on the broadway playbill you know <laughs> it'll be very sexy oh he's also an aerobics teacher and i just loved it so much that after getting one i got i decided to get a second one and then a third one and i ultimately collected six certifications in personal training <sighs> I became a, a floor trainer at Equinox when they opened in New York City in 1990 and slowly kind of made the transition from my previous career into this. I went back to school for nutrition, ultimately, you know, years later, PhD, and began doing a lot more nutrition consultations and mm -hmm. then a lot more writing. And, you know, my first book, 2001. And then from there, it's been pretty much what I'm doing now. Man, that's a that's a good story, and I like how it started with the honesty of just getting into it with, um, <laughs> yes. you know, wanting to look better. I think that's yeah. a thing that is very valid if people need that to get their foot in the door, and if they try and deny that that's a goal of theirs, you know, and they kind of like put it, they they push it down. They say, "Oh, I'm above that. I'm going for how I feel. I don't care about how I look." And I I think you should have both. You know, it's not either or. So good for you, man. For I mean, maybe it was either or in, in that case, just going for how you look. But the people listening, you know, I think it's not a bad thing uh, to put some focus on on wanting to look good. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting is what you learn, you know, what the better personal trainers and people who do health consulting for a living, you know, learn pretty quickly is that you have to, you always have to meet the client where he lives. And if you're working with a 21 year old guy, yeah, it's all going to be about chest, chest, chest. And how do I look better and, you know, look better behind the wheel of my Mustang and get the most, if you're working with a 67 year old grandfather, it may be about how do I stay alive long enough and healthily yeah. enough to play with my kids so you always have to meet them where the motivation is mm. it's not the same for everybody it's not the same at all stages in life it can be a combination of things but really you know the best teachers the best trainers the best facilitators of anything always meet the client 
where they live. So I'm curious now, with all the degrees and credentials and clearly your path in the uh, academic field and going through all that, what's kind of been the the change you've really seen in the industry? I mean, ugh, it's a different beast today than it was, you know, whenever that was going on a decade or two ago, you know, and... Um, you know, you see grass fed movements and whole foods on every corners now and, and gyms popping up and CrossFit everywhere. I mean, it's, it's morphed into something different, but how have you seen, uh, the nutrition and health industry just really change? God, you know, that's such a great question, Clark, and there's probably about five different angles we could take to look at that from sociologically sure. to, you know, what the content of the nutrition information that we teach is. I'll, I'll pick one at random and it's certainly not the only one. Um, the, the, the only major change I've seen. When I came into this field in roughly 1989, 1990, when I first got interested in this, this is what we we're talking 24 years ago. Mm. Um, I was, as a, as a personal trainer, that was my first education in the health field. I had a master's degree in psychology, which I still have, um, which actually served me very, very, very well in my work with people and with clients and with writing and with all of it. But I, I didn't have any training in nutrition or physical education. And so everything I learned about nutrition came from what they taught in personal trainer school and what they teach or taught then in personal trainer school came, and it didn't matter which certification you got, all of it was basically information, all the nutrition information and all the certifications in America. I don't care if it was the National Academy of Sports Medicine, American College of Sports Medicine, ACE, any of them, all their nutrition information came from the god-awful American Dietetic Association. Yeah. And I swallowed it lock, stock, and barrel. So I was one of those guys at that time who, you know, would order egg whites. And if even a trace of the yolk came on the plate, I'd send it back because I just knew. I mean, you're going to get a heart attack from that. Yeah, That's yeah. what causes, you know, a hardening of the arteries. We all know that. It's all about cholesterol-saturated fat. And, of course, you know, the, the, the dominant paradigm at the time and, unfortunately, very very sadly, tragically, it is still the dominant paradigm of the time, was that people are obese because they eat too many calories and they don't exercise enough. Hmm. This is one of the most destructive, blame the victim myths that I have ever encountered in my 68 years on this planet. Uh, it, it's not only untrue, it really, really victimizes, uh, it, it, it double victimizes the victim because it puts all of the onus of obesity on, you know, your willpower and and you're just eating too many calories and you're not running around the treadmill enough. And, and we now know that to be, I mean, anybody who, who's got an open mind and, and read in this field in the last 10 years knows that to be absolutely false. Sure. Um, so, you know, but we, I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, I believe that, you know, the way you got people thinner was to simply put them on the treadmill and cut their calories and make sure that they were eating a low fat diet. So I guess, you know, for me, I became a kind of a rogue or, or, or myth buster pretty early on. I was lucky in that early in my career in Equinox. Uh, there was at the time an unknown biochemist who was touring around trying to promote this cockamamie book he had just written, something called The Zone, which nobody had ever heard of. And um, it was Barry Sears, and he came to give a talk to the trainers at Equinox. Mm. And what he said was so utterly and completely contrarian to what we had been told and what we had learned that it, it was almost, it's hard to imagine how revolutionary that was at the time. This guy was saying we didn't eat enough fat. We didn't eat enough protein. We probably ate a few too many carbs. And that food wasn't just about calories. It was about hormones. It was about having a hormonal effect on the body and that weight loss and weight gain were driven by hormones. And unless you factored that in yeah. to your analysis of somebody's diet, you, you were just doomed to failure. Well, that was radical, absolutely radical at the time. And I remember saying to him afterwards, I said, Dr. Sears, if what you're saying is true, then everybody else is wrong. Hmm. And I don't know if you know Barry Sears, but he's <laughs> uh, he just nodded and said, that's exactly right. And we sort of became friends. He wrote the introduction of my first book, and I considered him a kind of an early mentor in alerting me to the fact that there was more to this nutrition and weight loss thing than what we had been taught by probably the most destructive health organization in America, the American Dietetic Association. And by the way, folks, 
don't write me and tell me that they've changed their name. I know they've changed their name, but, you know, <laughs> um, you, you change the name of the Ku Klux Klan, it's still the Ku Klux Klan. And I'm not calling the American Dietetic Association the Ku Klux Klan. I'm simply saying changing your name doesn't change your colors. Absolutely. It is still a reactionary organization that exists solely and exclusively to support the existing guidelines. They've never had an original thought in their mind. Yeah. They've never bucked the system in any way. Anything a doctor tells them, they just repeat. And, they, and the, uh, the spokespeople for that organization are like Stepford Wives. And I would ignore anything you ever hear from a spokesperson from the American Dietetic Association. You heard it first. Here we go. Um, so going back, I love what you said about you know your story and finding the zone diet. But before that, really being kind of one of those American Diet Association's um, promoters almost, maybe with the whole grains or the egg whites and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. Getting out of that blame the victim mentality of where you're putting them on a treadmill and watching calories go out and calories go in and trying and, to and by the way, that. Clark, I should probably just amend that a little sure. bit because people may not know what I mean when I say blaming the victim and when I say that you know that that theory is completely bogus. I am a big believer in personal responsibility. I think we absolutely have to take responsibility for our diets and for our actions and for all of those things. However, that said, because I don't, I don't think anyone should just throw their hands up and say, oh, I've got bad genes. I might yeah. as well just have yeah. a Krispy Kreme and a, and a pizza. Uh, so I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that what we've learned in the last 10 years it, is that there is so much more to obesity than anybody ever dreamed of. And if you talk to the really good researchers, and I've talked to them many times at conferences, people who've been working on this puzzle for 20 years, they will tell you that they are no more close to solving it than anybody else. And, and those are the real smart ones who realize how much more there is that we don't know. For example, there are uh, chemicals in the environment that are known as obesogens. They, in other words, they they actually create a condition in the body where it is much easier to store fat. They are obesogenic. In mm-hmm. other words, they they are uh, many of them are hormone disruptors. They act much like hormones, and they and they fake your body into thinking that it's getting hormonal signals that it's really not getting from its hormones. It's getting from the hormone mimics Whoa. that we get in in the environment. So we know now that what your grandmother ate influences your weight. What your mother ate in the womb influences your weight. There's some incredible studies on this. And it's, it's very, very clear. Um, you know, if, if this were all about calories, if it were all about calories, you have to explain why um, some people put on massive amounts of weight in, let's say, their butt, but they're very skinny in their arms. Well, if it's just about – isn't there something driving that? Yeah, Why when yeah. you look at different breeds of horse, is there a different shape to the body when they eat the same food and the same calories? Mm. I mean clearly there are other things going on that direct fat storage or fat release that, that uh, influence whether you have a sugar-burning or a fat-burning metabolism. And so there's just so much more to this than just you know calories in, calories out, which is just a dumbed-down yeah. kind of simplistic and, and utterly wrong way of characterizing what happens in the human body. Sure. And it, it almost opens it up more for you to be more responsible and, and go at it and uh, get better results when you realize, you know, hey, there's something to it when, like you said, someone's putting it on in their arms and someone's putting it on their butt and thighs and we're not all created and this exactly. same clog in a machine, cow in, cow out, and that there's right. other factors too, not just that, but like the xenoestrogens you're talking about or, you know, epigenetics that, that come into play exactly. and stuff like that. Exactly. So, do you think then today, you know, grandma was eating better foods and we can look at that and kind of say, oh, you know, they were they were doing it so well and we're doing it so bad. But do you think today maybe we have more of a uh, challenge with our modern world with, the, you know, technology and sedentary lifestyles and uh, now all the chemicals floating around? Do you think this is something we really have to take on ourselves and be really proactive about? It, it's a completely different environment. And I think one of the reasons that I, the, the paleo community is so friendly to me and I'm so friendly to them is that we share some, some very basic premises about this, which is it, it's to start, let's just start with this. I guarantee you that the cavemen never had to figure out what the number of grams of carbohydrates were in any given um, meal that they had on any given day, nor did they have to figure out if it's good fat or bad fat, nor did they even have to figure out whether they should resist their appetite or not. They were very in tune with it. They, they, they needed food. There was food available. It was whatever you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. You grabbed it, you ate it, and, you, and it served you. Um, this is not the case anymore. We now have a, a completely artificial food supply. 
We have 24-hour access to that food supply. We have multiple billions of dollars spent advertising and marketing that food supply and all of the food products that really don't resemble anything like what our factory, what I'm going to explain what I mean by factory, uh, factory um, uh, fuel uh, mix is. When I, when I say it's nothing like our, our factory specified fuel, this is what I mean. When you buy a washing machine, it comes with a kind of factory specified soap. They say, you know, we tested it in the lab and we can get this, uh, it's 37% reduction in, in dirt if you use, you know, the factory specified soap. Sony Walkmans or, or, or disc makers or whatever, they, whatever uh, unit you buy comes with a, a factory specified battery. That's the one they tested on. Mm. Um, so we all have this, these factory specified things that kind of, you know, you will get the best performance if you use the one that was tested at the factory. Well, we have a factory-specified fuel. Every being on the planet, every sentient being has, for, for lions, the factory-specified fuel is, is hyenas and, 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 you know, and whatever else they can catch on the African uh, Serengeti. Uh, if you can feed the lion chocolate chip cookies and keep him in a zoo, you may be able to keep him alive, but you won't get top lion performance from him. Mm. Well, we have, we humans, the human genus has a factory-specified fuel as well. Uh, the human genus, or the, the uh, predecessors to Homo sapiens been on the planet for about 2.4 million years. For most of the time in that 24-hour time clock, we have eaten what we could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. In the last minute of that 24-hour time clock, you know, the way I always put it is this, uh, you know, we've been on the planet 2.4 million years. Uh, The Ice Age ended, you know, 50,000 years ago. Agriculture started 10,000 years ago. And McDonald's was invented in 1957. So where should we get the template for the human diet from? Where, where are we going to identify the factory-specified fuel from? I, I look to the stuff that has fueled the human genus for the longest amount of time. And that really has a lot. To, that's where, you know, the, the paleo folks and I kind of really find common ground. Because, as I said, the paleo folks did not have to contend with a 24-hour supermarket with, a, with an endless array of choices, most of which are food products and chemical copies of real food, and they didn't have to contend with, you know, a a nonstop marketing machine convincing them how wonderful this food is and how much more of it they should eat. So it's a, if we're going to go back to any kind of template, if we're going to kind of clean out the closet and start again and go, okay, what's the best diet for the human, for the human being? Um, I'm a big believer that everybody's different, that we have biochemical individuality. We're all hormonally different, metabolically different, socially different, psychologically different. So we, we're never going to find the perfect diet diet for everybody. But if we're going to go looking, why not start with the foods that serve the human genus the best and the longest and the most efficiently? And those are foods you could hunt, gather, pluck, or fish. Mm. I wrote that down because that's going to be the clip tomorrow for sure. That little rant right there. That's a good <laughs> I one. Actually, I actually call it the Johnny Bowden Four Food Goose. Foods you okay. can fish, gather, or pluck. I like it. It's simple. It's got a ring to it. And so I think... When you're able to take big, complex ideas and distill them down to something people get, uh, I don't know. It's just it's just less intimidating. It's more opening, and more people are willing Thank to you. to do it. Um, and, and and going back to so what's different? So I started as I said with the low fat movement, the aerobics, the you know obesity is just about calories. Yeah. it's just about exercise. And and I guess you know as I said, there's many different changes, but one of the biggest ones I've seen is a real um, a groundswell. Uh, uh, for the theory that food has a hormonal effect and that we need to look at the impact food has on our hormones. And when we do that, guess what we find? The food that has the worst impact on our hormones is carbohydrates. Mm. The very food we've been told, the very food group, it's actually technically called a macronutrient. There's three of them, protein, fat, and carbs. The macronutrient that we've been told to make the bulk of our diet is the one that has the most profound effect on our fat storing hormones. How insane is that? I remember last time you were on the call, this stuck with me. You said something about dividing a room in half and giving uh, – do, do you remember this one? You can explain it better. I absolutely remember okay. this one. I, give, what, give us the room one. I love well, that one. The room one is this. If, 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 I have, if I was talking to an audience and 
what I what I often do to kind of illustrate the the insanity of our dietary recommendations for the last forty years, I say, okay, guys, you know the show Survivor, right? I'm going to make a here's a hypothetical test. Everybody to my left is going on the island, and for one year, you will eat nothing but carbohydrates. They can be the best carbohydrates in the world, but nothing but carbohydrates, no fat, no protein, okay? That's the group on the left going on the island for Survivor. Island on the right, group on the right, you're going to eat nothing but protein and fat. Nothing, not a carbohydrate, none, okay? Now, these are both artificial diets. Don't recommend this for anybody. We're going to do this as an experiment. We're putting you guys in the left, carbohydrate only on one island, and you guys on the right, carbohydrate, uh, uh, protein and fat only on the other island. What do you think would happen? the end of one year, the carbohydrate folks would be dead and the people who were eating the protein and fat would be doing just fine. Now, does this mean that I recommend you eat no carbohydrates? No, you'd have to be an idiot to think I'm saying that. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is how insane is it that the one macronutrient you actually don't physiologically need from your diet is the one we've been told to eat 65% of our calories from? Yeah. Big stuff. And I think it goes back to, to this whole, uh, I mean, we could get into, you know, the political lobby side and what we subsidize, but I, I really want to focus it back on the hormonal aspects okay. of food. So when you're saying, you know, you can eat carbs, but you don't technically need them. What's going on physiologically for the person? This is their maybe first call listening and they're hearing this revolutionary, you know, carbs may not be the end all be all like I, I, I can do without so many. What's going on there? And, you know, bring it back to hormones and what's going on in their body. Why are carbs different? Well, it, it's it's just ironic because it, it really to answer that you have to do so much unlearning. We have we have to empty our our minds of so much garbage that that that, that lives in there. You know yeah. that fat causes uh, heart disease and cholesterol is the is you know a big predictor of heart disease and and we should avoid saturated fat and carbohydrates give us energy and before you do a race you should carb load. There's so much garbage that's been taught to us over the last forty years that's already in our minds that. That to even begin to unpack this really requires people to wait a minute. That doesn't, I mean, that's like telling me the world's not round. Yeah. So let's, you know, let's start with, let me try to take this very <laughs> stepwise so we don't shock anyone out of, uh, you know, in, 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 into, um, into the next world. Um, it, you require protein for every biochemical compound in your body for hormones for uh, neurotransmitters for you know for muscles for bones every structure in your body requires protein protein comes from the greek meaning of primary importance so you must have protein and there's a lot of debate about what the ideal amount is which amount really is necessary to prevent protein deficiency not that much but what's the optimal amount for energy for high met metabolic rate for fat burning that's a very different amount how athletic you are what your body fat is, all these things impacted. But the fact is, whatever the number is, we all need protein. Now, what does fat do? Essential fatty acids, they get into the membranes of the cell. They make it possible for the cells to communicate with each other. Uh, they lower, they, omega-3 fats lower inflammation. Saturated fats are healthy for the brain. There's, you know, monounsaturated fats are healthy for the heart. There's a million different things that essential fatty acids do that are necessary for the body. You can't live without them. Now, Carbohydrates provide some really good extras, like a ton of vitamins and nutrients and minerals and phytochemicals and flavonoids and fiber, because there's really no uh, fiber is only found in carbohydrate foods. Mm. Not all carbohydrates contain fiber, but all fiber is contained in carbohydrates. So, the, you know, fi high fiber carbohydrates are very important. I believe fibers are very important addition to our diet. Mm. The problem is that most carbs are not in the class of carbs that we really want to be consuming. Um, when, we, when you and I talk about the carbs and, and, and maybe the need for it in the diet, we're talking about vegetables. We're talking about very low-calorie, high-fiber, nutrient-dense foods. When other people talk about carbs, they're talking about cereal and bread and pasta and yeah, rice and right. potatoes. This is, this is just not the food that sustains the human genus. It just isn't. What they are are very high-starch foods that convert to sugar in a heartbeat. And what that does is it drives up your fat storage hormone. 
Now, what's really interesting, if you read the work of Gary Taubes or any of the historians of this stuff, you find that this was the common knowledge and it was the way every doctor treated obesity up until about 1960. They just took them off sugar and starch. Everybody knew this. It was in the textbooks of biochemistry. It's, you know, Gary Taubes went back and looked at the medical school curriculums in the 1950s. Everybody was teaching this. And it was only, you mentioned earlier, we don't want to get into the politics of it, into the lobbying of it. That's a very big part of it, though. Yeah. Because when we became this society that supported and, and you know, wheat and corn and dairy and sugar and, 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 and um, you know, supported that in a million different ways economically and, and politically, we actually changed the landscape, not only of the food that was available, but of the information that the American people got about how important these foods were. I mean, you had the dairy industry for years was the main source of nutrition information. They came up with the four food groups. Hmm. And then you had the USDA who has two mandates. One is to protect agriculture and to make sure that people get fed in America. But the other thing is to also protect the business of agriculture. So how they do that is they give you lots of information about how important it is to eat grains. So you've got your food pyramid with the god-awful 11 servings of grain. They finally got rid of that and they improved it, but not by that much. So we're still taught that, you know, cornflakes and Cheerios are the breakfast of champions. And this is, it's not the breakfast of champions. It's a bowl of sugar, you know? And it's, and, and, and I think that's, you know, some of the good stuff that I love in the paleo movement. I have some issues with some of the things in the paleo movement, but basically I think we're on the same page in saying that, you know, what our caveman ancestors ate for breakfast was what they could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. It didn't come out of a cornflakes box, nor should it. Absolutely. And, Great way to put that. I, I love the hunt, gather, fish, or pluck. And when you look at the whole um, recommendations and, and things like that, it's it's changing. And like you said, I mean, they revised it, but not by much. And I think people are starting to realize that even if they're revising it, it's still the same crap. And they're going to more alternative, um, more holistic approaches to everything. I mean, you just look at the amount of uh, gyms to CrossFit ratio, right? And kind of a different approach. And they realize it's not just about going in and walking on a treadmill. You look at the conventional chain grocery stores to the farmer's markets popping up in every town and people are becoming more aware. You even look at like CNN or like the stories they're covering. I, I think it was Time Magazine. They just came out with that big butter article. The butter one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because that is made, because we're finally getting to where, I mean, I believe this. My next book is about this. So I'm, I'm banking on the fact that this is <laughs> finally hitting a tipping point that, that high fat diets and, and the reintroduction of some of the banned saturated fats that yeah. we all believed on this witch hunt was so bad for us. <laughs> I think that information is finally beginning to, I don't know that it's even going to happen in our lifetime, but it's beginning to turn around. There's just been too many studies in, since 2010, yeah. uh, really well done meta-analysis, including a, a couple that originated at Harvard, um, that have just absolved saturated fat of a major role in heart disease. It just, it, it wasn't true. Yeah. And, and I think as we begin to find that out, there will be some shifts. But let me point something else out that, that's kind of interesting. Um, it, I think it also comes down to, you know, you were saying uh, that there seems to be a, I think you were saying earlier that there seems to be a groundswell. There's all this alternative stuff. People are turning away from some of the conventional prescriptions for dietary, uh, you know, some of the conventional dietary prescriptions and, and, and formulas for health. I actually see that, Clark, in a way, as a parallel. The U.S. Congress, as of this, this recording on this day in 2014, has an approval rating of 7%. 7%. Um, we're not trusting the government very much these days. And when it comes to nutrition, I think that distrust is very well-founded. Mm. We have gotten nothing but platitudes and special interest PR sheets uh, uh, from the government about, the, about what food we should be eating. And, and you know, I, I don't even blame them. I just blame us for listening to them. Um, and, and I think that what you're seeing when you say all this alternative stuff and all these – this stuff that is, is cropping up is kind of groundswell stuff with people turning to peers, turning to trusted scientific authorities, not necessarily the, you know, the government authorities, not necessarily that god-awful American Dietetic Association, but, but people that they have found are trustworthy, that they believe, whose information makes sense to them. And they're trying things out and they're yeah. talking to each other. And, you know, we, that's why 
you know, and sometimes that really flies in the face of what the quote unquote science says. But sometimes folks really have some really good hunches about these things. And particularly when they're getting nothing but the same old, you know, apology for high carbohydrate diets that we've always gotten from the establishment. It's no wonder that they're beginning to turn to some alternative sources of information. Mm. And so the alternative sources of information, clearly you're on the cutting edge of that with your books and the products you put out. It sounds like you're working on a new book you just mentioned. Can you kind of, I mean, how far along is that in the process? It will be out in March of 2016. It will be HarperCollins Big Health Book of the Year. And I am actually, I can't even tell you the title yet because we're still working on that. But believe me. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But it comes faster than you realize. And it's a big book. And we hope that it will go a long way towards changing the paradigm about, you know, high fat diets. Okay. Okay. And so when people hear high fat, I mean, they're freaking out right now. They have, I I guess, two things come to mind. And we can really tackle either one of them because I know you got some uh, great books on, on both of them. And that is cholesterol, the first one, and saturated fats, the second one. That's what they link up to when they hear high fat and they freak out and they tense up because that's what the mainstream media, which we covered, has been promoting. So, I mean, start there. Like, what, what's going on with high fat diets and cholesterol and saturated fat? Well, let's uh, – uh, I'm glad you brought them up together because they're, they're so uh, um, inextricably linked that it's almost impossible to talk about one without the other. So let me ask – let me just throw out this question to whoever's listening to this. If you've been told not to eat saturated fat, if you've been told to avoid animal products, if you've been told saturated fat is bad for you, what's the reason? Now, I, obviously, this isn't a live audience, so I can't wait for people to stand, put their hands up, but I'm going to, I'm going to answer for you <laughs> because this is the reason that you've been told not to eat saturated fat and why saturated fat is bad for you and why it's going to cause heart disease. There's one reason and one reason only. It's because of the effect of saturated fat on cholesterol and because of the belief that high cholesterol leads to heart disease. So the logic is very simple. Saturated fat raises cholesterol, at least the way we used to measure it, and cholesterol causes heart disease. So anything that raises something that causes heart disease has got to be bad. If it turns out, just do a thought exercise with me, folks. If it turns out that that's a lot of caca and that cholesterol not only doesn't cause heart disease, it doesn't even predict heart disease very well. What happens to the dietary recommendations? They crumble like a house of cards because they're built on one premise. Cholesterol is bad. Cholesterol causes heart disease. Cholesterol predicts heart disease. Anything we can do to keep cholesterol low is good. Eating less saturated fat may help to keep cholesterol low. Therefore, saturated fat shouldn't be eaten. But again, we spent 238 pages in our book demolishing the, the antiquated theory that cholesterol is a major player in heart disease. It's not. Mm. Fully 50% of people who are admitted to U.S. hospitals for cardiovascular events or any kind of heart disease at all have absolutely normal cholesterol. And there are, there's a double-digit percentage of people walking around with elevated cholesterol or as healthy as a horse. It's a lousy predictor of heart disease. It has a minor role at all. And the role it has is not even the LDL, HDL stuff that we've been measuring like that since the 60s. Mm. We now know that there's four or five kinds of LDL, four or five kinds of HDL. There's HDL2, HDL2A, there's LDLA, LDLB. There's all kinds of subfractions and they don't all behave the same. All LDL isn't quote unquote bad. You know, there's a couple of really nasty ones like LP little a and and LDLB, but LDLA is a big cotton ball. It's a harmless little molecule. It doesn't do anything. So when you talk about something raising your cholesterol, you want to know what kind it's raising. If my cholesterol is going up, but it's all LDL-A, I have hardly any LDL-B, and I got a lot of HDL-2 that's anti-inflammatory. I, I want my cholesterol to go up. So we are, we're measuring it in this old-fashioned way of good and bad, which is just you know completely uh, a passe, and it does not even have the kind of correlation or predictive value that we ever thought it did. So let me throw something out there. We had uh, Jimmy Moore who wrote Cholesterol Clarity and Keto Clarity on the podcast good friend yep and he was talking and one thing that stuck out from his stuff and 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 what he was going off on on cholesterol was that it wasn't 
uh, okay, cholesterol is the fireman going to put out the fire. And people, you know, when they show up at the scene, they don't blame the fireman for the fire. Well, they do. Yes, that's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. I've used that analogy myself. Um, and, and it's, uh, you know, I, I say it, it's like blaming the fireman for the fire or the St. Bernard for the avalanche. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's when, when, when you have the, 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 in our book, the great cholesterol myth, we postulate that there are four major promoters of heart disease. And one of them, probably the number one of the four is inflammation. Without inflammation, you don't have heart disease. Yeah. So what happens is inflammation, uh, for, you have these little inflammatory pockets that form in the, in the um, vascular system. They're little injuries, little micro injuries. Then, then things come along to try to patch them up. There's some cholesterol, some bacteria, some calcium, all kinds of stuff, debris, and you sort of make this stuff that can then turn into plaque and it can break off. But without inflammation, it doesn't happen. So, you know, doesn't it make more sense? Rather than lowering one of the components, you know, of the patchwork, yeah. wouldn't it make more sense to say, why are we so inflamed? Yeah, and how can we put out the inflammatory fires? That's what he said. He came on the call and in a southern accent, he's like, clock in from, or he said, uh, <laughs> cholesterol is not the problem. It is the inflammation that's the problem. Let me tell <laughs> yeah. you something, Clark. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, there we go. Good stuff, Jimmy. Yeah. And so that leads in really well then. Um, you know, so we have this inflammation. Well, let's not focus on cholesterol because we know it's it's maybe serving a purpose there. Or we, we just don't have we, – we have all this inf- misinformation out there that's that's you know complete BS to a certain extent. And so when we're looking to do things to maybe lower inflammation, I know one of the best ways to do that is – uh, starts with the saturated, ends with the fat, you know? It, it, it really is. Well, actually, I, I would beg to disagree just a drop. Saturated fat probably isn't my number one anti-inflammatory fat. The number one anti-inflammatory fat is omega-3s. They, they are the most anti-inflammatory molecule I can think of on the planet. And, and um, But saturated fat is kind of a neutral fat. It doesn't do any harm. It, uh, according to David Perlmutter, it probably does a lot of good for the brain, um, and it, it, we certainly don't need to fear it in terms of heart disease. The other thing that we've learned from research, particularly from Jeff Volick, uh, uh, he's now at, the, uh, at, at Ohio, but he used to be at the University of Connecticut, and he's done a massive amount, over 200 peer-reviewed published studies on low-carb diets, and we know from his research very clearly that the behavior of saturated fat in the body is very different in the presence of a high-carb diet and in the presence of a low-carb diet. When you're eating high-saturated fat or any kind of fat, in, a, in the presence of a low-carb diet, that fat is used for energy. It become, you, you, you prime up your metabolism so it's a fat-burning metabolism instead of a sugar-burning metabolism. It's something we talk about uh, a lot in some of my programs. Um, so, but when you add all that fat to a high-carb diet, that's yeah. a yeah. whole different story. Whoa. And, and you know, I, I would say to someone who is absolutely married to eating the sad diet, the standard American diet, you know, food court diet, high carb, you should probably be on a low-fat diet because that, that mix is not a good mix. But if you, if you lower the carbs, saturated fat just acts completely differently in the body. All the fats do. Wow. And, 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 and um, you know, that, that's a whole different story. And I always use, I always liken it to people understand paint mixing. You know, you go to Home Depot, you, you buy a can of white paint. If you keep it by itself, it behaves one way when you put it on the wall. But if you add it to black, now you have pink. If you add it to green, now you have yellow. It behaves differently depending on what you mix it with. And that's how fat behaves in the body. Mm, good analogy. And so, okay, clarify me for a second because I – I was under the impression that all fats are very, with the exception of, you know, the polyunsaturated and like the trans and the inflammatory ones, but a majority of the fats were anti-inflammatory and like you eat coconut oil and it's very uh, anti-inflammatory. Are you saying that that's not exactly true? Because that was the impression I was... No, no, no. I'm, I, 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 fats differ in how anti-inflammatory they are. Um Gosh. Uh, there's, you know, I've never been a big fan of high amounts of omega-6s. Now, polyunsaturates, let's just be clear, it covers two different types of fats. There's polyunsaturates that are omega-6s, 
like corn oil, safflower oil, right, soybean. Right. And there's polyunsaturated fats that are omega threes, like fish oil, DHA, EPA, you know, uh, alpha uh, ALA in, in flaxseed. So they're, they're, those are omega threes. Both okay. threes and sixes are both polyunsaturated. It's the omega threes that have all the anti inflammatory power. The omega sixes are actually the precursors to inflammatory compounds in our body. Now, they're very necessary for mm. health. We must have a certain amount of them. One of the problems in our diet is the imbalance between the omega-6s and the omega-3s. The omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. The omega-3s are anti-inflammatory, and we need them to be in balance. Now, people say, what do we need anything that causes inflammation in the body? I'll tell you why, because it's part of the healing process. If you get um, a splinter, right? You get that area gets swollen. Why wow. does it get swollen? Because white blood cells are surrounding the area trying to prevent a microbe from getting a hold and starting an infection. So you've got fluids surrounding the area. You've got that kind of swelling and inflammation is part of the way the body heals. You need the ability to, you know, temperature is inflammation. You need the ability to have that as, as part of a healing response. The problem is when you, when you put that on overdrive and there's no break on it, and when we're eating 1,600 times more, we eat 16 times more omega-3s than we do, uh, omega-6s than we do omega-3s. The ratio is 16 to 1. The paleolithic ratio is 1 to 1. That's the ideal wow. ratio. Wow. So it's not that these things are bad, that omega-6s are bad. It's that they need to be in balance with the anti-inflammatory omega-3s. Okay. The, the monounsaturated fats, olive oil, um, which are, they're also called omega-9s, tend to have some, anti, they are also anti-inflammatory. Um, and the saturated fats seem to be neutral. Some of them, like coconut, may have some very brain-positive effects, largely because they help uh, create ketones, and ketones are a wonderful, marvelous source of energy for the brain and for the muscles and for the heart. So there are, it certainly has a lot of, of pluses, some of the saturated fats. Um, mostly they're neutral, I would say. Uh, palm oil um, has, has some wonderful tocotrienols that are very brain-protective. So there, there's a lot of good reasons to have some saturated fat in the diet. There's no good reasons to avoid it unless, of course, you're getting fat from toxic meat, from factory farmed animals, because they do, so, all animals, inclu and including people, store toxins in our fat cells. Yes. So if you're, if you're eating meat from, the, from McDonald's that yeah. came from a feedlot farm, you can be pretty sure that every single hormone, pesticide, bovine growth hormone, steroid, antibiotic, and the stuff in their food all wound up in their fat cells. So yeah. that's not where I want my high-fat meat to come from. Because they sell them by the pound, and the fatter they are, the more money they get. It's exactly yeah. true. And you talk some of them up, boom, 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 bigger, 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 more money. So with uh, – okay, I know we're coming up on time, but I just wanted to put a cap on the uh, cholesterol and, and, and saturated fat um, discussion because a, a light bulb went off in my head when you were talking, Johnny, and that was that you said inflammation is part of the healing process. So when someone's heavily inflamed and we start looking at their cholesterol levels because, right, that's the fireman putting out the fire and we start seeing it, it means that something's going on that they're not well and that that – healing process, the inflammation is what we need to focus on because that's our sign that something's not there. It, it, that's exactly right. The, okay. Look, we know inflammation is a, a part and parcel and it's a promoter, an accompaniment, an accomplice to every degenerative disease we know of. My friends who do autopsies tell me they do autopsies on the brains of Alzheimer's patients. They see inflammation, heart disease, inflammation, diabetes, obesity, cancer, Every single one of them, even the quote-unquote lighter ones like asthma, I mean, all of them are wow. inflammatory diseases, and inflammation can either promote it, make it worse, cause it, much like stress. So, yes, we, we eat a very, we're exposed to a very inflammatory environment, medications, all the things that tax our livers, um, all the pesticides, all the, the chemicals in the environment, sugar in the diet, highly inflammatory, way more inflammatory than fat ever was. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so yes, we're in a state in which there is a tremendous imbalance between inflammation and anti-inflammation, and that's a big part of human health. But we can fix it, and you got some killer products and killer books to help people get on the right paths and the right journeys. So if someone was um, curious about maybe the high-fat style or learning more about your work and, and um, how they can get healthier and maybe reduce their inflammation, where would you recommend they start with your work out there? 
Well, if they if they were looking for a weight loss program or for a, a new relationship with food, I like to call it. Um, one of my favorite programs is Unleash Your Thin. I think you have that on your yeah. website because yeah, we, do. we talk. We, it, the, the dietary program is very much in line with what we're talking about. But what I think is most interesting about that program and why it it, it sort of is pulls to my heart to is one of my favorite things that I've done is because it really addresses a lot of the psychology of cravings, a yes. lot of the associations that we have to the foods that we crave, and how you because if you can't break those if you can't you know in some way conquer those or, or make peace with them yeah. you're kind of screwed you know because willpower will only take you so far so you really want to see if you can disempower some of those cravings and uh we do a lot of work on that in unleash your thing yeah and, and real quick guys i mean i uh i've had that program and looked over it several times and I, every time i'm just blown away by uh the questionnaires and the psychological aspect that you get in there and the relationship with food. And it really, it goes after a lot of things. Maybe a typical book wouldn't go after. Um, and so the link, I think we'll, we'll put it in the email and definitely check out the previous show, uh, with Johnny. I think we did that last year or something like that. Again, that was, um, we go really in depth into that. So that's a, that's a great place to start, man. We're out of time. Dr. Bowden. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Loved having you again. Uh, definitely maybe 2016 will get you for the first interview on that new book. I, I would I would love to do that. And may I mention my website if anybody wants it. to yeah, check yeah, yeah, that? Yeah. It's johnnybowden.com. No H in Johnny. J-O-N-N-Y-B-O-W-D-E-N. Pillar Hackers, that is it. Thanks for tuning in for that episode with Johnny. Notice the show's cranking back up. That's because we're taking 2015 extra, extra seriously on Paler Hacks. There's nothing we take more seriously than our than our show this in 2015. Actually, all jokes aside, we are thinking about branching into video and really upping the content, upping the frequency of these shows. Um, so if you have any comments or concerns or questions, um, topics you want us to cover, guests you want on the show, we're booking right now for the season. So send them over to Clark at PaylorHacks.com. If you just want to say what's up, that's great too. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's all good. Clark Dangerous. Um, and then lastly, ClarkDanger.com It's the place to be infomercial is done the show is concluded thank you for your support over the years um let's make 2015 a good one later guys